ladies, gentlemen, and of course, everyone in between. My name is Clifton Duncan. This is my podcast, the second episode. And I'm going to start out by talking to you uh, about a few writers from the 1940s. Um, before I introduce my guest, who was very, very, very fantastic. So basically, in October of 1943, a Marxist pro-communist radical named Isidore Schneider, he wrote a think piece uh, in the equally Marxist literary and cultural publication, New Masses. Um, the piece was called Probing Writer's Problems. Probing Writer's Problems. Schneider wanted to open a discussion about the issues and limitations he felt were stifling left-wing, i.e. Marxist, art and art criticism. Um, I'm not going to go over the whole piece here, but a couple of choice quotes to give you an idea of what he was talking about and uh, where he was swinging. Uh, one quote is, uh, however good reporting and immediate propaganda may be, the writing done for the moment seldom serves beyond the moment. And uh, the final paragraph in that essay contains this gem. He says, no writer need worry about being politically correct if his work is faithful to reality. Um, and again, this is criticism coming from the left wing, the artistic and literary left wing. Now, in response to this, uh, this particular essay, this think piece, a man named uh, Albert uh, Maltz wrote a piece in 1946 called What Shall We Ask of Writers? And if you bear with me, my dear uh, listeners, I'm going to read uh, a lengthy excerpt from it because I think it's so important and so crucial to the conversation we're about to have and the broader conversation we need to be having as a society and a culture. So Maltz writes, it has been my conclusion for some time that much of left-wing artistic activity, both creative and critical, has been restricted, narrowed, turned away from life, sometimes made sterile, because the atmosphere and thinking of the literary left-wing has been based upon a shallow approach. Let me add, he backpedals, let me add that the left-wing has also offered a number of vital intellectual assets to the writer, such as its insistence that important writing cannot be socially idle, that it must be humane in content, et cetera, et cetera. But right now, it is essential to discuss where things have gone wrong, why and how. So Maltz continues, left-wing writers have been confused, yes, but why? The answer, I believe, is this. Most writers on the left have been confused. The conflict of conscience, this is what uh, Schneider was writing about. The conflict of conscience that Maltz writes, uh, Maltz writes resulting in wasted writing or bad art, again, in response to um, claims that Schneider made, has been induced in the writer by the intellectual atmosphere of the left wing. The errors of individual writers or critics largely flow from a central source, I believe. The source is the vulgarization of the theory of art which lies behind left wing thinking. Namely, art is a weapon. So Maltz goes on to say, as interpreted in practice for the last 15 years of the left wing in, in America, it has become a hard rock of narrow thinking. The, the total concept, art as a weapon, has been viewed as though it consisted of only one word, weapon. The nature of art, how art may best be a weapon and how it may not be, has been slurred over. I've come to believe that the accepted understanding of art as a weapon is not a useful guide, but a straitjacket. In order to write at all, it has long since become necessary for me to repudiate it and abandon it. Whatever its original stimulating utility in the late 20s or the early 30s, this doctrine, art as a weapon, over the years in day-to-day -day wear and tear, was converted from a profound analytic historical insight into a vulgar slogan, 
Art should be a weapon. This in turn was even more narrowly interpreted into the following. Art should be a weapon as a leaflet is a weapon. Finally, in practice, it's been understood to mean that unless art is a weapon like a leaflet serving immediate political ends, necessities, and programs, it is worthless or escapist or vicious. The result of this abuse and misuse of the concept upon the critics' apparatus of approach has been it must be and must be disastrous. From, from it flows all of the constrictions and, we must be honest, stupidities too often found. I mean, these, these, are, these are not my words. as Albert Maltz, 1946. Um, the result of this abuse and misuse of a concept upon the critics' apparatus of approach has been and must be disastrous. From it flows all of the constrictions and, we must be honest, stupidities, stupidities too often found in the earnest but narrow thinking and practice of the literary left wing in these past years. This has been inevitable. First of all, and we're almost done, first of all, under the domination of this vulgarized approach, creative works are judged primarily by their formal ideology. What else can happen if art is a weapon as a leaflet is a weapon? If a work, however thin or inept as a piece of literary fabric, expresses ideas that seem to fit the correct political tactics of the time, it's a foregone conclusion that it will be reviewed warmly, if not enthusiastically. But if the work, no matter how rich in human insight, character portrayal, and imagination, seems to imply quote-unquote wrong political conclusions, then it will be indicted, severely mauled, or beheaded, as the case may be. And on that note, those, uh, those are Albert Maltz's words from 1946. And my guest today is a Cuban-American writer and artist, uh, the horribly unattractive uh, Salome Sibonet. Uh, she's known for her distinct style of truth-telling, melding philosophy and psychology to diagnose modern issues. Salome, whose name uh, lacks poetry uh, completely, has written for Ario Magazine, writes the, cultural, the cult favorite newsletter, Weird and Good, and examines film as modern mythology on her podcast, The Silver Eye Society. She firmly believes that existential dread is an art. You can find her on Twitter and Instagram at Salome Sibonet. I certainly hope I pronounced that correctly. Salome, how are you, my grossly, grossly hideous friend? <laughs> Thank you for that wonderful introduction. I really appreciate it. And no, you did justice to my name. Thank you for that. I'm oh. good. I'm really excited to be here and to speak about this uh, this article in particular, because when you sent it to me and uh, I finally got around to reading it, I was so glad that I did because it's one of those things that reminds you the problems that we think are unique to today are actually ancient human problems with roots that go far deeper than our own lives. Totally, totally. And I mean, you know, in these, these works, these write these writers, um, they're writing 75 years ago. And I know that one of the things that I have been really, um, that I've been really, I won't say disturbed by, maybe perturbed is a better word for it, is that, uh, you know, we talk about culture war this, culture war that, and normally when we do so, um, especially in this quote-unquote alternative space, you know, we're often talking about policy and ideology and economics and uh, war and peace and all these kinds of things, which obviously are important. But I feel like one thing that is often grossly overlooked and never talked about is the kind of art that said culture that is at war is producing. And it's been very frustrating for me, partly for selfish reasons, because I, like you, am an artist. And um, I just feel like, okay, well, you can't, 
you can't complain about how bad the arts are, how uninspiring they may be, how quote unquote woke they may be. Um, while you don't have any skin in the game, while you don't participate, while you don't try and contribute to understanding um, what it is that art is and what it and what it does. And we were batting ideas back and forth on how to address this because I'm in the same place as you. I'm, I'm well, maybe not in the same place. It seems that you've been piecing together these things for longer than I have. But all I can say right now is it feels like, and I felt this for years, that there is some sort of cultural malaise, cultural decline that is happening. And I don't know how to explain it. And we can get into some reasons why later, but I, I believe that you and I are pretty much simpatico on the idea that something is wrong. And we're not talking enough about art and artists and artistry. And I, I wonder if part of that is American culture. Part of that is, um, I mean, Camille Paglia once said that America is a very utilitarian culture. Um, and so for that reason, it's one of the reasons that it doesn't see much value in the arts. But all we do about art and artists is we look down on, we look down at them, we sneer at them, we complain about how bad they are, we complain about how too many, you know, how our, our movies and television, how music has become too woke. Um, but we don't really talk that much uh, about it. And uh, frankly, I feel I'm, I'm, it, it kind of pisses me off, to be honest about it, because <laughs> this is important and and who we it it goes to i think it's a question of our national identity and who we are as a society who we are as a a culture as a civilization um i mean we still look back at uh, the european renaissance and the works that those produce and we're like wow you know what what kind of people could create a culture where a shakespeare or or a marlowe or a ben johnson existed or you know look at these russian novelists and playwrights and composers and you know and poets um, and America has had its own writers, but it doesn't really have, I, I guess, maybe a unified, rich artistic tradition. And, um, you know, I'm sure I'll be corrected on that. But the the subject of my long winded rant is that more and more people in this, whatever this alternative space is, you want to call it the IDW, whatever it is, there needs to be a cultural dark web, not a bunch of intellectuals and 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 heady personalities talking about ideas. We need to be talking about stuff that gets past ideas, stuff that reaches beyond the, the intellect and into our hearts, into our guts. And um, that's one of the reasons that we're, lo- quote unquote, we are losing so badly because we've mm-hmm. lost over how important this is. So, so that's my rant. That's why I wanted to have you on today, because I feel <laughs> like you write so powerfully about these issues and about freedom in particular and about the individual that um, basically I'm done. I'm going to let you talk for the next few hours <laughs> and, uh, just, and just, just uh, let her rip. All right. Well, I mean, I completely agree with everything that you're saying. I uh, particularly, I also feel a bitterness in the, uh, towards the direction of our culture. I just, and I think that we are not the only ones that sense that we're not getting the great art that America once did produce. Uh, That's, you know, that's something you can't debate. There are decades that are cultural, iconic culturally. And um, it seems to me that since the late 90s and onwards, that's when we started to see a a change in art in the mainstream, at least. Um, Because of course, there's this is, you know, you have to make this clause, there is good art, it's just harder to find. And um, I do feel like our artists are trained and almost subservient and almost they're very shiny and commercial now Mm. and um 
it's such a change from the the iconic artists that we once looked at that were devious, that were uh, offensive and, and pushed the boundaries. And this comes back to the question of what is the role of the artist, right? Because right now, I mean, if you went back to the the, the eras of uh, of the 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 hippies and 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 rock and roll and all of that it would be condemned now it would be offensive um and so the culture the climate that we're creating for art is one of hypercriticism one of moral purity which is not a lot of great art came out of uh, the puritan movement so i think that and that's not to say that there is not um great religious art or something like this this is something we can get into is uh the way that different ideologies interact with art. But my concern is that there has been a shift in our culture's understanding of the artist. And this is not to say that the culture ever truly understood the artist, because that is the role of the artist is to be misunderstood eternally. A truly great artist is never understood until they're dead for the most part. And that's because they step outside of their culture. That's how they bring in new life to their culture. They bring in something uh, that that was on the edges, that was not being dealt with by the culture at large. And of course, this is the same reason that they're pilloried by the culture for the most part, because they drag up what's being left on in the shadows, what's being ignored, what's coming down the pipelines that the masses haven't yet been ready to grapple with. And um so the artist has always had this contentious relationship with society as one that that dares to step outside of the boundaries of what is permissible within the culture. But that's what brings new life to a culture. And this is my fear now, is that we're getting to a place where our culture is becoming so oddly regressive, oddly uh, puritanical and moralistic, that the very people who are supposed to be creating that culture are the ones that are now critiquing and stifling it. So you have the universities, the art students, the uh, the art critics, the awards ceremonies and all of this that are moving away from the position of creator and curator towards a position of controller and even censor. And so if you have a situation where it's the very art students that are condemning wrong think in art, well, where is the art coming from then? And this is, uh, I do believe, to, to be, um, not to be completely dark and, and um, pessimistic, I do believe there will be a cultural renaissance. Either that or we're ruined. There has to be. Mm-hmm. Any good culture has to have a good art movement. And I think that's why. You can look to politics, you can look to policy, you can look to the news to see what's going on with a culture. Um, But don't forget to look to art, because Mm -hmm. art in some ways is almost a more honest barometer of the health of a culture. And it'll tell you the truth, because that's another um, issue. And we're going to go, I think we should go into that um, article now, is that I think Maltz Maltz says um, how 
the artist has to be in communion with reality is essentially the point that he makes. And this is the problem when you get a culture that is concerned with controlling and, and this kind of collectivism that I believe is being stoked heavily by social media, which is an inherently collectivist medium. And um, it creates this, this uh, inner critic for the artist, which is something that kills art it kills it well it's not just it's not just inner critics too it's it's um oh yeah you know, for, for the longest time uh you know I, i've shared this with people who know me um i mean i spent 15 years in new york city the reason that you go to new york city um is not because it's a fun place to live especially if you're an actor um it's i've often called it the best place and the worst place to be as an actor it's the best place because there's so much culturally to observe and to absorb at the same time it's just a really really fucking hard place to live and it can be soul it could be soul draining but all, given all of that um you know when i first started out as an actor you know i'm i'm in washington dc and i'm uh, you know i'm in my early 20s and sleeping in my car and on people's couches and and doing um shows here and there for almost no money but it was exciting because i'm meeting people and i'm and for the first time in my life i'm seeing really great professional theater and uh you know washington dc i think is a superior town as far as theater goes uh, to new york city but if you want to make it, you have to go to New York City. Um, it's either New York or it's L.A. And over time, once I was in New York, I found myself really not being motivated to go to shows. I was very motivated uh, initially when I first discovered uh, like Broadway and the Golden Age, which people typically peg from um, to be about the about the mid 20th century in America. And um, all these new composers that I'd never known, you know, Rodgers and Hammerstein, Rodgers and Hart, uh, Cole Porter, the Gershwins, Irving Berlin, these sort of classic Tin Pan Alley um, composers. And later on, you had shows like Hair, if people know that in the 60s, which kind of came in, you know, sort of hippie musical, this hippie rock love musical, which kind of took Broadway by storm and the culture by storm. And at that time, you could hear um, songs on the radio uh, that were also hit songs on Broadway. And there was a much more... Uh, there was much greater synergy with with the theater culture then and Broadway and, you know, the, the, the stars would tour in their plays um, uh, uh, amongst the provinces. And it just was a, a more important thing. And for me, selfishly, I've sort of been like, well, what if theater could be relevant in that way again? And I think it can be. We can get into why that is later. But the point is that over time, I really I just stopped going to see shows, even if I had friends in them. And part of the reason was I, I didn't feel included. I felt excluded. And it was because I began to feel like they were making shows. People were making shows, producing shows for themselves. And, and when I say selves, their selves, I'm talking about the sort of system that you highlighted. It's the, the publicity system, the, the, the PR campaigns. It's the awards campaigns. It's the, uh, it's the critics, uh, which is what, these, what the writers that we, refer, that we referenced earlier were talking about. It, it, it affects the critical atmosphere. And once you get the, critical at, the critics on board with this sort of thing, then that dictates what gets produced, what gets written, uh, what shows are considered hit shows. One thing that Maltz talks about is how... Um, I love how he, how he brings this up because, again, this is 1946, 75 years ago. It's still relevant. But a, a show, no matter how well crafted it is, um, can be panned by critics or ignored and dismissed if it doesn't match the, the, the critics' own moral political uh, compass. And what it's doing now is you have these writers who are coming up and these people who are trying to produce work that conforms to this, to this specific idea, um, ideological worldview. And 
it, to, to me, I just, I find it so boring. And what's frustrating mm-hmm. for me, um, and I, 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 I totally feel like you sense this as well. As an artist, I was trained, we have to go to the darker places, the uncomfortable places, the harsh, cruel places of who we are as people. I mean, I, I, I sat down with one of my, uh, my teachers, you know, there's like, there's, and they were like, look, there's a certain point where you have to decide for yourself if as an artist, you're going, to, what kind of artist you're going to be. And like you said before, I mean, again, I'm so excited that we're having this conversation because I had a director I worked with who said, you know what, if Nina Simone or Billie Holiday tried out for American Idol or The Voice, they wouldn't make it past the first round. Two of our greatest artists of all time would not even make it past the first round because everything right now, it's about the surface. It's about what's up here. How does it look? And increasingly, it's about what kind of points, what kind of message is this work sending and what it's doing now. It goes against what I learned, which is that, you you know, it, it should be messy and ugly and not not all art. Obviously, like you can't make a, you know, a messy My Fair Lady. You know what I mean? It's not it's not that kind of a thing, but it's just it has to be reaching, real. It has to be real. And when you're reaching and, you know, the reality is that human beings are complex and they're nasty. They can be dirty. They're, they're capable of all mm-hmm. kinds of things. But what's happening is now the culture that it, that uh, the culture of people that's being called upon to produce these works that we that we uh, absorb on on mass is one it's one of safety now it's so san- mm-hmm. it's sanitized for the protection of an increasingly large number of people and what people are finding is that no this is so this is sterile this is exactly what it's boring uh, uh, like it, you said it's, it's what Schneider said it's it's boring it's sterile there's nothing interesting about it and people are feeling that even if they're not articulating it they're 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 saying well what happened to star wars what happened to our comic books what happened you know what's about to happen to the marvel universe it's so if if you try to say like well art and artists aren't important then you're also saying that you, you're ready. You're, you're ready essentially for more and more of your favorite franchises being ruined. I mean, Indiana Jones, I, I heard some news about that the other day that again, it's, it's about what points people are making ideologically and, and people aren't, they're, they're not serving audiences anymore. They're serving their peers and they're serving this system that we talked about. And um, like, like, like you said before, it's just, it's very stifling. It's very boring. I mean, when you're in a rehearsal room, and um, an example I love, I love to use is, uh, is Shakespeare's Macbeth. And uh, for those who don't know, Shakespeare's Macbeth, it's, a, it's, a, it's one of his shorter plays. It's very taut. It's one of his later plays. It's a thriller. There's magic. There's witches. Um, and it's about the, the, the titular character, Macbeth, who is a, a warrior and a general. And he decides um, at the urging of his wife to assassinate the king. And what happens is once, he's in, once Macbeth is installed into power, um, he becomes a terrible tyrant and a dictator but early on in the play Macbeth and his wife his wife who's been more gung-ho for you know for the uh what's the word uh regicide um early on uh she she has this scene where Macbeth is supposed to go and murder the king but he gets an attack of conscience and he he can't bring himself to do it and so he, he has this scene where his wife is pretty much needling him and basically like, you know, what are you a pussy? What you, what you afraid? You know, cause she had a monologue earlier on in the play was like, unsex me here. I wish I was a man. I would do this, that, and the third, yada, yada, yada. And I feel like the, the dynamic between the two Macbeths, you can't have a real, like you, you, you can, you can be in a rehearsal room and be like, yeah, well, you know, I feel like as the man in this situation, this is a, this is reflective of so many conversations I've had in a relationship and dynamic between men and women, yada, yada, yada. But if you talk about the dynamics between men and women, you will get laughed out of the room or just shouted down by, you know, these hardcore feminists uh, who who can't 
see anything negative about women, even though Shakespeare himself has written it into the play, right? She ends up killing herself later in the play because she can't deal with the consequences of what she has done. And um, it's just, it's one of many examples and anecdotes I have to share where, you know, once you're in this atmosphere and in this environment where, especially as a man, um, if you say something uh, that is slightly critical of women or that might be uh, positive towards males or male identity, then you get shouted down and, and we can't have that. And it's just, a, it's just a narrow example of the kinds of things that you are and aren't allowed to create in a room. You can't, you can't have real, grounded, uh, gritty, honest drama if you're doing that. And that's what the Greeks, uh, I mean, the Greeks figured that out. The drama is supposed to be a mirror to our society and, and you know, the good and the bad. And yeah. Um, if, if I can cut you off really quick about the Yeah, Greeks. I know. I'm, I'm going on. I'm going on. I know. But, I uh, want to yeah. jump in. There's so many things that you're saying that are so important and so great. Go ahead. Here's the interesting girl, thing. I gotta. Here's the interesting thing about the <laughs> Greeks, though, is that, uh, okay, so we are, to me, again, the art in a culture is uh, indicative of the culture's health. And um, the Greeks had this interesting idea that, you know, the word catharsis. Mm-hmm. So the idea of catharsis is this kind of a, a relief, a, a climax. But if you trace it back to the origins of how it was used in regards to plays, the idea was that through experiencing these emotions or situations in art, you were relieved of them. You were kind of exercising your anger, your sadness, mm-hmm. your resentment, your fear in a healthy, safe environment. So my fear here is what happens when that safe environment, because I'm sorry, enough with the ideas are dangerous, art is hard hurting people, then we can't just remove all our tendencies for aggression, for resentment, for for discord. Those are part of the human experience. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the, um, the, the tension between the sexes is ancient. Of course, mm-hmm. it would be. Uh, we're different. And that, of course, already is something whoa, whoa, that's offensive. Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> Shut this podcast off. <laughs> you know, well, you know, it was going so well. And you said something controversial know, that we I all know. know. And uh, going to get pulled. Uh, going to get well. pulled. Well, it's been a wonderful uh, podcast. And uh, it's been <laughs> lovely meeting you. And uh, have a nice day, everyone. Yep, that's it. And that is why our art is suffocating. It's because shit. we can't even say something basic like this, that there are differences between the sexes that bring about discord. And that discord is where the art comes from. That's what the point of art is, is to can dig I, can I jump into in? that. Can I jump Please. in really quickly? Because I, I worked on a show. This was in New York. It's off-Broadway, major revival. And it was it was based on uh, uh, Prosper Merimé's uh, Carmen, which is, I mean, if, if you've read it I mean, if, or not, I mean, you have to read it. It's, it's 18th century. It was what the, the uh, Bizet's uh, uh, opera Carmen was based on. Um, there was a movie adaptation uh, called Carmen Jones. There was a play that came from it. It's, this is the play that we were doing. And I remember early on in this process, I was so excited because if you read that novel by, Pro, by, by Prosper uh, Merimé, it's, there is such a great intermingling of sex and danger. And the story is told from the point of view of Don Jose, who was a military officer. And it's narrated from first person, but he's chronicling 
how he is losing his mind because he's so obsessed with this really exciting, really dangerous, and very, very sexy woman who stabs bitches in the face. Like, it's literally, it's like scenes in the play. She's cutting X's in women's faces. You know what I'm saying? And so it's a, it's a brilliant character. It's a great story. It's a timeless story. And I was like, oh my God, I can't wait because all the things are in this story. It's like, it's these, you know, these men who fall in love with the, with the wrong woman and, and women who are able to like use their, their wear, so to speak, and, and get anything that they want. And just like, she is a hustler. I mean, it's just, there's so much. And then we were, we were in rehearsal first week. And um, so the adaptation that the, that Oscar Hammerstein did, he said it in 1947, it's an all black cast. Um, it's Carmen Jones. It's set in like World War II or whatever. And I, I tried to bring up the point gently um, in rehearsal that, well, you know, um, one element I see in the script for this, um, for this uh, play is that uh, there's a lot of tension between the, the male and female characters in this play. And maybe because it's the 40s and it's a wartime effort, we can maybe explore the ideas of men and women not having shared the same workspace for an extended period of time. And immediately, one of the other women was like, nah, ah, women been, been working at this point. Da, 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 da. I'm like, I'm not trying to make the fucking point that, you know, women don't belong in the workplace or that they never, that they, or that they shouldn't be in the workplace. I'm saying that, you know, as people that are here trying to create a story and trying to create, uh, trying to infuse um, the, the stage with some kind of life and tension. That's one of the, I mean, and I feel like, you know, this one of the, uh, the, the cornerstones of drama is tension and conflict. We're trying to find what that is because you have, like you said, men and women working together who are different beings and they're trying to occupy the same space. And that's in, it's in the source material, of how men and women get along, how, you know, maybe we can use this to, um, to, to kind of find some heat underneath this story, what we're doing, but, you know, I got shut down immediately and I was just like, okay, well, this is going to be, you know, uh, black women's victim hour. Then um, I don't really know what else to say about that, but it's, it's those kinds of things that keep stifling what's put, what's um, what's possible. I had an acting teacher who said, it's not about what's probable. It's uh, probable. It's about what's possible. And I think we've lost the idea of what's possible because we're, we're so, we are so, devoted to these narrow ideological uh socio-ideological lens which, which is what these guys were writing about 75 yeah. years ago it's the same problem now well that's the idea the art is a weapon or rather weapon. art should be a weapon mm-hmm. and I, this is a really interesting idea to me that that part of the essay uh, or the article stuck out to me because i started to think okay well if art should be a weapon is it your weapon or is it a weapon that you're wielding for someone else's purposes? Because art can be a weapon by all means. Mm-hmm. But who is the one that's deciding the target of that weapon? Who tells you when to pull the trigger of that weapon? Mm-hmm. So my concern with this idea, you know, that art has to do some kind of social good that is immediately obvious. First of all, this is insanely arrogant to believe that you can control art in this method that you're going to turn it into some type of vehicle for bringing about some uh, exact social outcome you would like that is to, to that is the antithesis of art to believe that you can mangle it and preform it to reach point b the mm. best art allows for spontaneity allows for the unexpected 
allows for the unknown, which is what the artist does. The artist goes out of the bounds of what we know, what we see, what we deal with on a day-to-day basis, and tries to find what it is that we're not seeing, what we're ignoring. Mm-hmm. That's what your question was in, in, uh, in that rehearsal was, what's over here? And immediately, nope, we don't go there. That's the opposite of art is when you shut down that sense of what about over here? What's this place over here that we're not sure about? Let's investigate this. The impulse to shut that down is the impulse to censor art. It is the same because I do agree that art is a weapon. And that is why there is always so much debate about who's going to control that weapon. Wow. I mean, And it's funny listening to you because it, it brings me to the question, um, which is one you pose. So I'll, I'll let you, I'll, I'll throw you under the bus and let you try to answer it first. But, you know, what is the role of art and artists in, in our society and in, in, in our culture right now? Or, I mean, now or, or ever. Mm-hmm. Um, it, 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 because it seems to me, I mean, I mean, there, there's so much that you said that I, I totally respond to and resonate with, because that is how I was trained. We're supposed to live in the unknowns. We're supposed to uh, we're supposed to go to those places that nobody else wants to go to. And the irony of it, at least in the entertainment industry, is that you have all these people calling themselves artists who say that we're going to buck the status quo. We're going to, uh, you know, challenge the authority, yada, yada, yada. But it's like, no, now you are the ones who are enforcing you are the, the authority. Status quo. You are the authority. You are mm-hmm. the status quo. I'm sorry, but if McDonald's and Apple and Google are all saying the same shit that you're saying um, and Disney, then you're not the revolutionary that you think you are. And mm-hmm. um, so I, I guess it, it, it boils down to, well, what are we all doing here? This, this is the quest that I've been on. And um at least as far as uh, at storytelling and, and art and why some stories endure and why some don't. Why is it that uh, I love the Marvel movies so much, the DC movies, not so much. Why is it that uh, years and you know, decades later, Casablanca remains one of my favorite movies of all time. It's a wonderful life. Um, it's a brilliant, it's a brilliant film. Why are we still performing Hamlet or King Lear uh, uh, hundreds of years after they were written? Why do the, why does the work of these Russian authors endure? And I'll go back to something you said at, at the beginning, because there is, I feel like there is sort of a cutoff point as far as American art goes. I think of the, uh, the great, uh, playwright August Wilson. I don't know if you're familiar with him, but one of the most celebrated um, Black playwrights uh, in American history. And he died um, early uh, in the aughts. And he wrote this amazing 10-play cycle. He called it his, his century cycle. Uh, and every play he wrote was set in a different decade in America, chronicling black uh, a snapshot of Black life at that time. And even though I disagree with many of August Wilson's politics, much of his politics, he still wrote these incredible, rich plays about ordinary people who are just trying to live their lives. But it's like after that point, like there's some people here and there that reach those kinds of heights, but it's just it's not really it's not really quite the same. And I just I don't I, I, I don't know what died. And mm-hmm. I. I I guess what, what I'm trying to find, and maybe you can, you can help me out with this, is again, it goes back to that question of what is art and what is its purpose? What, where, where does the artist go in, in a society like ours? 
Uh, yeah, I, I also have that same sense that something died and uh, it is a visceral <laughs> sense. And I think in some ways we the stench is becoming uh, clear at this point that something's mm. rotting. I mean, I think if, if I had to be blunt, I think that we've lost completely the the understanding of what an artist even is. We've confused art with entertainment. And this mm. is a controversial idea because especially if you bring it to the art students of today, they will tell you that anything is art, okay? And this is a theory. Let me be emphatic with that because I think a lot of these things, we, we pick up these ideas and, and we run with them like they're facts. Well, fine, you can have your postmodern ideas. They are theories. And maybe your theories work, maybe they don't. That's the point of a theory in this context. And so the idea that, Anything is art. I have friends that um, go through MFA programs and they come out with such a misunderstanding of art. And I almost went to, to school for art. I'm glad I didn't because luckily I was, I'm of an age that I would have been already kind of rebellious against these ideas. Um, had I been younger and already kind of steeped in these ideas uh, about what is art, uh, art criticism, I mean, Pretty much, I, I work with artists um, in, in a writing capacity, and when I see what they're being asked to do with art, it does make me suspicious because a lot of it is this this uh, idea of critical analysis mm. of art, and, and there's a problem with that because it's so sometimes it's so uh, devoid of understanding the art itself everything becomes um th this mode of breaking it down and i think that we see that in our culture now which is why people have so much trouble allowing the artist to be because everything becomes something that we must deconstruct to understand its purpose or its role and a lot of the time art evades that art is not academic it can be of course, you can go to school and learn techniques, but I think that there's a danger in divorcing art from its very primal, almost, I would say, almost pagan, almost uh, 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 kind of mystical roots. There is something inherently unknown about art. We don't understand it fully. That's why it's so magical to people that a, a book or a song or a film can make you feel such strange things, make you feel alive, make you make you want to reach out and call someone that you haven't spoken to in months. You know, that's hard to understand what that truly really is. Now, I mean, I love to deconstruct art. That's what I do on my podcast. So the Silver Eye Society, we take film and, um, we, we look for these larger elements in it. So recently we did Fight Club, which I thought was very interesting because Fight Club is about right on the border to me of where American art started to take a little bit of a decline. Mm -hmm. And I believe Fight Club is 1999. And it's a very, we should all watch this movie again because I think that it, um, it gives us a kind of backstory for the culture that we are in now. And it's mm -hmm. the beginning of nihilism so it's if you recall the movie is very has this anti-consumerist message that uh we're stuck in office jobs we're we're not the rock stars and the celebrities we thought we were going to be instead we're working as waiters and what's the point of just collecting cars and clothes it's all meaningless so let's destroy it so that's the idea that when things become so meaningless 
then at that point, destruction is the inevitable outcome. And so you can look at a movie and you can deconstruct it and find some truth there that helps. That's And this is why movies last so long and, and film and art in general, because we are still human. The human that was a thousand years ago still deals with the fear and, and the love and the anger that a human today deals with. Mm-hmm. What we do, I, I think, is we update the vehicle that we impart those messages with so instead of a greek play we have a movie today or or whatever or we use the culture that we're in today so the culture around the emotions and issues changes but the issues stay the same because they're from the same species they're from human beings and so that's why i think if you tell the truth in art Rather than trying to express the the idea du jour, which is going to change inevitably, that's what makes art lasting. That's what makes it resonate. Because unbeknownst to you, just being truthful in what you try to express, you tap into something that spans thousands and thousands of years. It is something true to the human experience. And so... Um, there's something else that you said that I'm, I'm forgetting though. I wanted to, oh, the art, the role of artists in the culture. So, um, I worry that, that we're, we're, we've confused the artist with the entertainer. Mm. And, you know, we, you spoke about this a little bit about how, yes, we can call ourselves artists, but if we're aligned with all the, the, the things that artists were once opposed to, which is the powerful, uh, the oppressive, um, the mainstream, then are you truly an artist in the traditional sense as someone that steps outside the culture and challenges the mainstream? If you are carrying the mainstream and upholding the mainstream? I mean, this is to me why I, I truly think that we have lost uh, the appreciation and the understanding for the artist in our culture. And the idea that an artist should anything is already flawed. That's not what artists do. They don't should anything. They do what they do. That's their role. And we leave them alone to do that. We don't, you know, you always see this happen when an artist gets bigger, when they get really popular and they sign some expensive deal or something. Mm. Their work changes just a little bit sometimes. And there's something different about it. And, you know, people would always say, oh, they sold out or whatever it is. But it's the too many chefs in the kitchen problem is once you have an artist that was only communing with themselves and whatever that, you know, the Greeks would call it the muses, whatever that um, that internal impulse is that lures them in one direction to express that. Once you start adding factors into that, which is what should the artist say? What will be popular? What is good? That's each of that. It, it, that's a cut upon the, the connection with the artist and the muse. Mm-hmm. And I think that what the more we put Mm, burdens upon what artists should be, 
the more we're going to kill art. Because of course, this you take it to the extreme and you get to some type of fundamentalist society where art is completely controlled. And what does it become then? It becomes propaganda. And that is a, a, an interesting question also to, to debate is that the line between art and propaganda today. Because if you start out with your art and you have a set of goals in line, which is, I want people to believe this thing. I want to indicate this message. Well, you're getting into the territory of propaganda, in my opinion, because mm. the best art is organic. It is spontaneous. It is free. And so when we try to harness art and the artist for to, to become the servant of some kind of uh, uh, ideology or, or goals that we have for it, I think it, it um, it's almost like it rebels against that. It art inherently rebels against the idea that you you singular human are so powerful that you can wield it in some some way so easily. I think this is why the the idea of the muses is such an apt understanding of art. It's that it's you're a conduit and art is something larger than you that comes through you to express something larger than you as well. Mm. You know, there's there's quite a bit that you said there and uh, I, I jotted some things down. Um, one, uh, I will say that I take umbrage and offense to one thing that you said, uh, which is about these people in these MFA programs. Um, mm -hmm. I, 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 I was one of those, but uh, <laughs> I probably should not have gone. I mean, I, I totally because one of the criticisms that uh, that is often levied against me, or at least was um, as an actor, is that I tend to live in my head a lot. And in, in these programs, it was a it was a three year program. And they threw a lot at you and you, you know, you're a young, plucky 20 something and you want to get everything right. You want to apply all the things that you know. And what it does is that it, it does a number on your, uh, Michael Chekhov, who is the nephew of the great Russian playwright Anton Chekhov. He would talk about um, the creative persona of an artist. And um, he was totally about, you know, the individual and finding one's, you know, tapping into one's imagination. Whereas, um, Stanislavski, who is uh, the Russian uh, director, writer, actor, who is widely credited with uh, inventing or coining what we now call the method, although a lot of his work has been misinterpreted, unfortunately. Um, you know, Stanislavski's method was much more analytical. And you're looking at um, some of the offshoots of that were like, you know, go into your own emotional memory and, and yada, yada, yada. And I don't want to get too much in the weeds on that. But it uh, there's a saying that Stanislavski had, which is don't love, don't love uh, yourself in the art, but love the art in yourself, which I think was really interesting. But there's this idea of the in the individual. I had a, a wonderful teacher named um, Zelda Fitchandler, who's sadly no longer with us, but brilliant, brilliant woman. And she talked about how um, two things. One, the work that we do um, as artists and the lives that we lead um, are not two separate things. They're both conjoined. And on top of that, we hear oftentimes today that the personal is political. But what Zelda said is that the personal is universal, which is what, uh, which is what you were talking around and, and talking about. That the more personal something is to that artist, the more they're able to make it personal. Paradoxically, the more universal it becomes. And I discovered this. I wrote a solo piece um, a long time ago, and it was centered around themes of loneliness, disconnectedness, um, social alien, alienation, some depression. And I had so many people from so many walks of life coming up to me and saying, like, I totally identified 
with what you were talking about here. Something similar happened to me. Um, this made me think about how I behave with my own children, so on and so forth. So again, once you, once you honor the, the individual, and I say all the time, I'm so glad that you said this, um, and you get this from reading all these old plays, or you do research from, from period pieces uh, about different you know, eras in history. And again, Zelda said that, the, that information is inspiration. And um, so you learn over time after doing all this reading and all this research is that even though societies change, civilizations change, customs change, what motivates people has largely remained the same. And I do think that there are people that have an issue with that. They, they think that uh, it means that uh, humankind, mankind, whatever you want to call it, personkind, sorry, Justin Trudeau, it's, um, it's, it's, they don't want to contend with the idea that, that it may be fixed, that we may not be perfectible, and um, that, that gives people problems. But uh, I, I also, gosh, it's just a scatterbrain response because you said so much that I want to respond to. I, I also think that um, there is something about honoring the, the individual and focusing on the individual and, and, and a person tapping into what is unique and specific about them. You know, that, that's why we have all our movie stars right now. And then again, I think there's a cutoff point where, because it's like, who of these people now is, is, is as interesting or compelling or unique as a Morgan Freeman or a Denzel Washington or an Angela Bassett or a, a Betty Davis or a, a, a Viola Davis or a, um, uh, a Dustin Hoffman is one of my favorites or a Jimmy Stewart. You know, these, there's, no, there's nobody like these people. And, you know, all the techniques in the world isn't, isn't going to change these, what these, what these people do, what they bring to the table. Um, I'm, I'm going down a list of things that you said, and I hope uh, this isn't too <laughs> scatterbrained for people, but I'm, I'm just so excited about that, that I'm having this conversation publicly. Um, I will say that there's, there is an element of, you know, art and artists who say like, you know, we have to challenge everything and, and sort of, um, you know, we're talking about the muck and, and the dirtiness and the ugliness and all that stuff. But there is something about, I mean, and the British conservative uh, Roger Scruton, the late Roger Scruton talked about these kinds of things, but the importance of beauty and talking about art for art's sake. And so it's like, well, maybe does art always have to have some kind of a purpose? Does it have to always be challenging things? Can, can a pretty piece of music just be a pretty piece of music? Can a pretty painting just be a, a pretty painting? My argument is like, yes, it can. Yes, it can just be, it can just be escapist in a way. It can be uh, um, um, something that is a, a diversion if it's, if it's beautiful. Because I think what it does is when you see beautiful things, when you respond to things, um, and beauty could be, it could be me looking at a pointillist painting uh, from, you know, um, what's his name, Seurat. It could be me looking at the brushstrokes of Van Gogh, but it could also be me hearing, uh, you know, some some really stupid, ignorant trap song or whatever, mm -hmm. and being like, yo, I got to get out mm -hmm. and just get going. Like, it's whatever that feeling is. It's whatever that feeling is when I hear hit, uh, Whitney Houston, um, you know, sing whatever it is that she's saying. I don't feel that when I, when I hear Mariah Carey sing, but I mm. do hear it when Whitney Houston sings because Whitney Houston was an artist who could tell a story and she was tapping into something else. And it's, it's, and she was a wild of, one too. And she is uh, important she, to set that aside, to put that out. There's she, something uh, in the artist that you can't control when they're really good. They are, uh, they're going to, they're going to rub you wrong sometimes. They're, they're going to be rub, rough around the edges sometimes. Be a rough. That's a couple, right. A couple of things I wanted to get at um, um, really quickly. And then one, one thing I really wanted to ask you, because 
it, it, it takes it beyond the realm of the, the art and art is intangible. And I think one of my beefs with more conservative minded people, I mean, I have a friend who um, said, you know, that art doesn't produce anything. And yeah, you know, we're, we're not, um, we're, we're not producing, you know, cars or, you know, paper or computers. You can't really quantify what it is that we do, but, you know, I, I think back to, this was uh, over 10 years ago and um, I just got out of drama school. It was a recession. It was really bad. And the week before my, my birthday, uh, I got dumped pretty horribly, pretty spectacularly. And back when Netflix was sending out DVDs, um, you know, I had this movie called Forgetting Sarah Marshall uh, with Jason Siegel and, and Kristen Bell and uh, Russell Brand. Very, very funny performance in it. And I wore that DVD out. It, it's just, it got me through a very, very hard time because it was, it's a silly movie, you know, it's Jason Siegel and, you know, but it, it, it got me through because it inspired me to, you know, move beyond my suffering and pain. And, and it helped me laugh at it because there's many scenes in that film where he's like, where it, it derives great pleasure. The film derives pleasure out of the, out of the main character's suffering. I mean, comedy, um, insider baseball here, but comedy is often referred to as tragedy plus timing. Um, but it helped inspire. It just it just got me through a really, really rough time in my life. And art can do those kinds of things. And, and, and it, it just it it lifts it beyond the realm of, of logic or rational rationality or reason. It makes me think about what Hamlet said to uh, to Horatio early on in, in the play. Now, Hamlet, if you read the play, he's a very, very brainy character. His his wit is unparalleled. He's so smart. He's so fast. He's so uh, uh, eloquent. And his brain just works in all cylinders. And he's in school at the time. And he's talking to his best friend, Horatio, who was, who was studying to be a philosopher. And Hamlet has just seen a, a ghost who looks like his father. And in my interpretation of the role, if I were playing it, I would say, like, this has totally changed Hamlet, the, the trajectory of Hamlet's life. This is a man who lived up here for, for his life. He lived in his head. But now he's seeing a contact from the spirit realm. And he tells his friend, there is more in heaven and earth, Horatio, than is dreamt of in your philosophy. And to me, that's what that's where art resides. It's in this weird spirit realm. It's not quite religious, although we might get to that later. But th there's a power behind it that I don't quite know how to quantify. But I want to put all that on hold. We'll get to that later, because I want to ask you, um, you're talking a lot about freedom and the individual. And we're talking, you know, we're talking around um, authoritarian ideologies and systems. And this is this is what. Um, uh, Isidore Schneider and Albert Maltz were talking about, these were both devout Marxists from the left who were talking about what can our artists do and what's, what function do they serve? Now, you are Cuban and you've written very powerfully. Uh, there's a piece that, that we were talking about called If You Watch Freedom Die. And I'm just curious uh, from your perspective, uh, how much of that upbringing, how much of your familiarity with communism, with, uh, with the things going on in Cuba and Cuban history have to do, how, how have they shaped the, the, those worldviews and, and why you're so vehemently, uh, I guess, pro-individual and, and like me, I mean, I don't have that background, but I'm also seeing like, you know, something is really wrong here and it's, and it's conformist and it's just, and it's, uh, authoritarian and something was weird about that but how how has your background shaped um, um where you've arrived at your opinions today i'm very curious about that yes um my mother fled cuba when she was in her teens i believe and um her stories living in cuba and this was a time when the 
the regime was more repressive. Uh, there's internet now, so it's a little bit um, more free in a sense, but not really. It's just that now Cubans have a window into what they lack, which may be a contributing factor in the growing unrest there. Because uh, once the bird sees what's outside, what it's like to be outside the cage, um, it's hard to keep that bird in the cage. It's easy to keep an animal um subservient when it doesn't know what else to want and so uh, the last time I was there I visited with family um and they're around my age um the the kids at least and they um there's a difference in how they they perceive the world because it's truly I can't emphasize how tragic it is to um to to watch people stagnate under authoritarian systems. And this is why I speak so much about the individual and about and against authoritarianism, both left and right. It's important to understand that these the authoritarianism is a spectrum. And on the far right, it's fascism. On the far left, it's communism. I think there's somehow some strange uh like finagling that goes on to, to let communism and the left escape the fact that once you go too far you become authoritarian and um well, that's because they were all doing it wrong salome you know uh, exactly duh i mean the cuban american doesn't know <laughs> about authoritarianism <laughs> um but you know the thing is that uh i think that is part of why i'm so vocal about it and so um it's almost like an allergy. I have an allergy to authoritarianism. It sounds almost cliche, but it's like it boils something in me when I see people try to strong arm other people. Because one, that that idea of authoritarianism on either side denigrates the individual. Because the idea is that we will sacrifice individuals to obtain a larger goal. And that is the point of both fascism and communism is that it is the group that matters more than the individual. And so we sacrifice the individual's rights, needs, freedoms, whatever, to get to our larger goal. Mm. And so it, it truly individualism and by extension, art is one of the greatest um defenses against authoritarianism and it, it's a barometer this is why i come back to this idea that you can check a culture's health by checking the the health of its art and um when art starts to become more this idea that it should be used for some greater purpose that is defined by some larger group we are getting into the realm of authoritarianism and i, I know it can sound alarmist to say something like that but i mean it's important to understand that the art that we make is inherently individualistic. That's what makes it good. No one wants to see your version of a Pollock. No one wants to see your version of a, a, a Kubrick movie. It's what you make that is going to be true art because only you can make it. And, um, and so this is the, the the link between individuality and art. And um, so I think, I mean, there's so much, I don't know where to go. Okay, so seeing, I guess seeing that the way that, that Cuba re represses its people, I mean, it, it gives you a context for what you're living in. 
you know, so I can get up and have a really bad day, but it's never going to be as bad as someone that's living on in a country where their decisions are made for them. What they can consume is decided for them. What they can make is decided for them. What they can pursue is decided for them. These are freedoms that we take for granted on such a massive scale. And I see that kind of entitlement, that kind of naivety with the way we're starting to toy with art and decide what art should do, what art should not be allowed. This is, it's a price you pay for freedom. You know, you don't get to have a free society and then also only have made what you feel is good. That there's only one or the other. Either you're leading the authoritarian regime that decides what gets created or you're tolerating the outcome of freedom, which is other people make things that you don't like. Mm. And so to me, the bargain there is very clear because I know what the other side of it looks like. I think that then this is the danger, right, of, of naive utopianism is that we believe that we can have it all. We can have freedom to create. We can have great art, but we can also dictate and censor and tweak art to be just what we want and to make sure that the things that we don't like don't get made. It's not real. It's, it's a complete fantasy, which is what utopianism is. And so I think that um, this is why I love art so much and why I love uh, true artists. I, I, you know, entertainment is great. And this comes back to the idea of beauty right now. I don't, I don't classify necessarily uh, a beautiful painting as entertainment per se. Um, you, you mentioned that it might be escapist, but I would even say that it doesn't even have to be escapist per se if something is beautiful just for the sake of being beautiful. Because when we look at a sunset, we don't say, ah, oh, well, this is a distraction. Mm. You know, it's beautiful just for the sake of its beauty. It doesn't have to have meaning, though we can give it meaning. When I look at a flower and I say this flower is so beautiful, I want to stare at it. I'm, I'm in awe of, of the intricate colors and, and the pattern. It doesn't have to mean anything. It wasn't that nature created it with some purpose of, oh, well, I need it to do this. I mean, there are purposes, obviously, behind why things evolve, mm. but we can still look at just the beauty of it. And that in and of itself has some power to it. I believe it was, um, I might mix it up. I think it was Plato that categorized art differently though, which I like. Um, I wrote an essay, a short essay on, on art, the distinction between art and entertainment, because I think mm. there's a problem, particularly in our culture, because art has become or the arts industry rather, has become, it's like a billion dollar industry. So you have to be a little more suspicious of what is going on in a billion dollar industry. You know, of course, there are interests that are not perfectly aligned with art at that point. They are aligned with profit and profit and art don't always mix perfectly. Art has to be it has to be first or else it's going to be polluted by another intention. And that can be anything. Those intentions that, that can pollute art can be uh, your, your desire for approval from your peers, your own fear of failure or what you might do wrong. And it can also be the desire to have this accepted and lauded and successful. Those are choices. They're influences that manipulate our choices and they may take precedence above the choices we make for art's sake. And so 
I think that's the, the, one of the important things to, to really understand is the difference between entertainment and art. And I think you can see that, um, I think you can see that in our culture a lot, which is we, we, we celebrate certain kinds of art, right? And it's, we love it and it's, it's great and everybody, it's very popular. Um, but, there, but it's, it's kind of this shrinking uh, circle of what is allowed to be popular or what is lauded. And, um, you, you see it. And this is where I worry that it gets escapist. You know, there is a room for beauty. And this is, again, the thing that, that Plato was saying, which is there's artifice, I believe is what he called it, which mm-hmm. is there's this lower kind of art. And this is kind of the art that describes the world. Then there's true art where he goes higher up now, which is art that gets closer to the true forms of existence, some deeper meaning. And And I think this is something that art is designed to do which is a kind of transcendence and that's touching on that idea that there's something spiritual about art there's something mystical something unknown and it's that ability of art to both transcend the self transcend the individual by the individual creating something that then transcends them i mean if we think about great art it true it transcends your life I mean, I'm, I always, when I, when I'm thinking of a, when I'm listening to a song or I'm, I'm, I'm looking at a a painting or something and the artist has been dead for centuries, it amazes me that someone can time travel, transcend the limits of their own existence through art. So there's this, this inherent transcendence in art, but again, you have to it has to be let to be. I mean, it cannot be this this tool that we weaponize for our own aims. I think there's um, I think there's a danger in that, and and that's one of the things that I I to come back to to the role of authoritarianism and art. Uh, you see this idea in authoritarian art, which is propaganda. It's the idea that yeah, sure, we can have art. But what is its purpose? And I think it's funny that your friend that's conservative says that art doesn't uh, produce something because it is a little bit of um, a, 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 a conservative idea towards the farther right, which is the idea of, of it has to be has to have a purpose, right? It has to have a utility. Well, this is and what uh, this is what uh, uh, Camille Paglia was talking about. It's a very mm. utilitarian sort of perspective, and um, what 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 we're talking about right now. I mean, I, I will go back a little bit to talk about. Because I know as a professional, um, I've I've never been much of a careerist, um, mm. you know. I, I and maybe, maybe one of the reasons that I I didn't go as maybe far as people anticipated that I would is because you know I I really apply myself to things that I truly believe in. But a lot of times it's, you're just trying to get a job, and so when we're talking about the industry, the arts industry, as you as you were making the distinction, um, that's a whole different animal. It's it's one thing to create something or to work on something because it excites you and it, and, it, and it stirs you and it moves you. But it's another thing entirely to be like, okay, well, I got I got, I need insurance and I got to put food on the table and uh, knock off these, uh, these loans. But I, f- I feel like what we're, what we're talking about and what we're talking around. And uh, again, you said so much there that I'd like to respond to. Um, and it kind of goes back to what you were saying a little bit earlier um, uh, about what we think art is or what the function of it is and how I think a lot of what we take as art and, and 
people that run our arts industries and they and they are involved in our arts education and training, um, they they come at it from this very sort of leftist. Uh, uh, postmodern deconstructionist sort of worldview, which ultimately is very cynical and very hollow. And I think that the result of that is that now you have a bunch of artists who are themselves very cynical and very hollow. I remember, uh, you, you know, when, when you're in our first year of grad school, we're going over this great, great poetry, uh, you know, by Shakespeare and others, um, or we have to do, um, the uh, the Greek messenger speech, you know, in every Greek play, there's this messenger who comes in and has like all this really shitty news and like a two page monologue. And then you never see the character again. And so you need an actor who can come in and can make that, which is really exposition, you know, but if it's done well, it's very artful. It's, it's gorgeous. And make that alive and make that sing and give it size and stature and power. And um, what my teachers would say was that we are increasingly finding it difficult to find people who are a, uh, able to um, l- extend beyond themselves, so to speak, and and embody these huge, huge, huge words, these huge stakes, these huge circumstances. But also we see fewer people that are willing to go there, who are willing um, to become uncomfortable, to become messy, to to really find something exciting and go beyond themselves. I mean, you know, and I've experienced this myself. And I think what it gets at and I remember working on scenes um, and there are times where it's like, you know, you're bashing your head against the wall and nothing is working and then something kind of clicks. And I remember, you know, feeling something kind of open up inside and nothing that you nothing that, that you've predicted happens. Your, your voice is unimpeded. You know, your, your emotions are flowing. You're just you're alive and you're in the moment and everything is crackling. And I guess what I'm getting at is what is. What is that for? I think what we're talking about when we talk about art and its importance, and if you want to use that term, its function and what it can do, it's very, very difficult to to quantify um, in terms that maybe some of our some of our more conservative-minded friends might understand. Because what we're talking about is something very, which is weird because you know if if a lot of them are Christians, for instance, you think they might understand um, more readily. Uh, that there's a realm beyond the physical realm, a realm beyond our intellect, a realm beyond all that. And I think, so what, I, I guess what, what I'm getting at is what we're kind of talking about and talking around, which is what is that feeling when you see a sunset? It's not quite art, but there's something in you that says, oh, it's it's gorgeous. And, you know, there's pinks and blues and, and, and oranges in the sky. And it's just a great serene moment, or you're looking at a great painting. I mean, I wrote a Substack about, about uh, looking at this sculpture that's 500 years old and being moved to tears because of the sheer amount of vision, discipline, uh, craft, skill, and dedication on display in, in this work that's affected me down the road. So the question is, what is that, that thing? What is that energy? What is that energy that's, that's harnessed in great art that makes our hair stand on end in, in a suspenseful movie that makes, uh, that, makes us, that makes me cry at the end of It's a Wonderful Life? Um, we, we talk about beauty and transcendence. These are things that I have been focusing on. I feel like we need a revival of these kinds of focuses, um, as well as art for art's sake. But we use the word transcendence. I'm thinking more of like transporting. What is it that allows, that gives art the power? What is it about art? What is art that gives it the power to help people trans, transport to a different plane? And, and, you know, whether they are in a museum, you know, they're at the Met, uh, if they're vaccinated, and they are able to look at, at, a, at a painting. And I mean, I've seen 
these works where I'm like, dude, this painting is hundreds of years old and it's, and it's oils on canvas, but there's so much story here. There's so much emotion down here and I'm fully absorbed in this. You know, what is it that I, I hear a piece of music and I, I get goosebumps or I, I bur- you know, the, the, the climactic moments of like Nesun Dorma or something like that, that are just, there's nothing like it anywhere else that I, that I can find. We, we're, we're trying to hone in on what is that escape? What are we escaping to? What are we being transported towards? And that, I don't know if maybe you might do it an injustice to, to try and, and quantify or concretize what that actually is. But I feel like that's what we're talking about. That, that's, that's what art creates. You know, other people might find it in religion. Other people might find it, God forbid, in politics. But there is a, and I, I believe there's a certain kind of creative energy that exists. It's, and, I, you know, I haven't really fully fleshed out this concept yet, but it's the, this kind of energy that says, well, back to the future one and two are good, but back to the future three, I don't know about that so much. I mean, I think it's underrated, but, you know, we, could, we don't have to get into that. But it's this idea of like, why do these works endure? What are these movies infused with? What are these works of music uh, or, or other art, these paintings, these shows that we love? What is that energy that, 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 that they're infused with? What is, what is the effect that they're having? And, and it, it is, you know, is that the kind of, is that the, is that the purpose, if we want to call it that, of art? Is that the, the utility of it? And um, I mean, you know, and I'm reading some Greeks myself, as a matter of fact. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm reading Aristotle's old work, and I love how audience-focused it is. He's talking about, in, in poetics, he's breaking down you know, what a quote unquote tragedy is and what makes a good tragedy, a powerful story. And it's all about the emotions elicited in an audience. And I think what's backwards right now is is that you have going back, you have a a bunch of cynical, hollow people who are shallow because of what, um, who are also shallow because of what Albert Maltz was writing about in terms of the left-wing intellectual environment. It is a cynical worldview because it's very deconstructionist and that they're trying to find you know, they're trying to break down what it is and it's very nihilistic, but that is, that is the ideology that's like sort of dominating everything. And maybe that's why the quote unquote magic that we were talking about, that you were talking about is, is somehow missing. Um, I'm not really making a specific point right now, but I'm, I'm sort of thinking out loud, you know, cause we're, 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 cause now we're moving on into the realm of magic and spirituality and these kinds of things that aren't really, I guess, ideally, could address, you know, the, the kinds of things that you can't get from reading, you know, uh, some treatise or reading the, the op-ed page in the New York Times. You can't get from current events. You can't get from a bunch of people bitching on Twitter. It, it's this, it's this other, this other realm. And this kind of leads into something that we were talking about, something I've been struggling with, uh, particularly as an atheist. I've talked to other people about this, but it feels to me like there's this great spiritual malaise right now. And you know, I feel like the cat's kind of out of the bag. I know there are some people who are becoming more and more what they call God-pilled. I've been kind of stunned over the past few years to see people who even started out as atheists, uh, pretty secularists, but now they're moving into uh, the more religious realm. I don't think that that's going to be in the cards for me. But at the same time, I do observe that um, there is a an, an energy, some kind of a force, some kind of uh, spiritual bankruptcy that we're going through right now. That that's the cause of a lot of the problems that we're seeing right now. And I guess the question is, you know, can art, and this is what we're, we're trying to p- uh, figure out, can art um, in a in an increasingly secular society, does art have a place? Can it maybe serve the same kind of function that religion once did? Um, 
you know, is there something that we can do as artists, as, as creatives, as creative people to help, you know, I don't take our country back, take our culture back, contribute in some way to kind of help because it, the, the stakes to me seem very, very high right now. And I feel like, um, you know, I don't want to get too deep in the weeds on some of this stuff, but I mean, even with response, to, uh, with, with response to certain pandemics, um, our politics, there is something that is, that is just, that is off and a lot of us sense it. And I guess the question is what role do artists play uh, in, in, uh, in serving us some kind of solve for whatever those wounds might be, I, you know, and I don't, I have no idea what that is. I mean, is there a spiritual component? Should we be leaning more into that? I don't know. I don't know, Salome, you tell me, cause I don't know. <laughs> well, I can give you actually a one word answer to the, the feeling, the emotion, the experience that you were talking about art providing, and that's awe. It's awe. That's why mm. art has this, uh, this overlap with the spiritual and the religious is because it can enact that same experience of awe, which is what something larger than us that is still of this world and actually makes you want to live. That's the beautiful mm. part of awe is that it makes you want to partake in life. When you look at a, a massive ocean, when you stand on the edge of a mountain, when you look at a centuries old painting that still hits you so deeply, you feel awe because there is something larger at play in that moment that you are part of yet. That's the thing. There's all these different factors that make up art. And so I like to, you know, talk about art from an intellectual uh, perspective even though there is this aspect to art that is completely anti-intellectual. And that's why I'm in part suspicious, not entirely. I'm totally fine with, you know, MFA programs. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> but <laughs> I just think that there, there needs to be room for understanding that there is something uh, far more uh, unknown and unknowable than what uh, any academic theory can describe in art. And it's well, all. If I can jump in real quickly. You know, the, I think one of the reasons that I'm frustrated right now is because my MFA program in particular, we were very, very keen on, I mean, I had teachers who were like, you know, I'm not, I can't teach you anything. I'm just trying to get you to get out your own way. Mm -hmm. And it, it's out. My training background is about recognizing, I mean, for my audition, you know, they, one of my uh, uh, future teachers pulled me aside and was like, you know, basically, you know, we, we see that, you know, the lines, but we're looking at the places where you don't know the lines where you, you know, where we, as an audience, we want to see what's in between the cracks there, what you've prepared, because that's where all the interesting stuff is. And I mean, you said that before yourself. And um, so with that kind of background, we're, we're supposed to lean into what makes us uncomfortable. We're supposed to lean into what we don't know. The best acting is all spontaneous and, and, mm -hmm. and we live, we live moment to moment. We don't know what's really going to happen next. That's what's so scary about it, especially as an actor. You just, you don't know what's going to happen, especially if you're doing live theater. Um, you know, anything could go wrong at any given night. That, that's where the nerves come from. It's not, you know, I'm going to forget my lines. It's like, oh my God, we got, we, we, we rehearsed <laughs> this thing and we know where we start, we know where we end, but with, you know, how if do you're we working get with there? really great people, how the fuck do we get there? And that's when you're really, really cooking because you don't know what's going to happen. That's right. And, um, and, and that's what's exciting for an audience because they don't know either. And um, so when I see the these very very narrowly prescribed uh, parameters of what art is supposed to be what what's getting produced um what what 
what we're supposed to, what we as a society are supposed to, uh, to, to absorb and internalize as, as the true art. I mean, I'm just, it's, it's totally, it's totally antithetical to what I was taught. And I'm, and I'm just, I'm stunned that more people don't see that even people, I mean, there are, there are award-winning actors right now who went to the same program I did spouting the same bullshit. And I'm like, you have no excuse for that because I know that you know better. I know you know better because we have the same background. I just don't, you know, I don't get it. Mm-hmm. No, I completely agree. And that's that idea that I get so riled up about because there's this kind of, it's a disrespect to art, honestly, mm. to think that it can be minimized into something, uh, some kind of tool. And again, that's that idea. Art is a weapon. weapon yeah. yeah, but it's your weapon. It's no one else's weapon. It's no weapon that someone else can dictate what it should be, how it, what it should do, all of that. And um, so, I mean, I think that we get away from 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 what art can truly do from that transcendence from that experience of awe when we get wrapped up in in what art should be these moral goals that we have for it this idea that you touched on that um some students i think you said are are were having trouble kind of getting out of their own way kind of being being able to to transcend themselves and and go into these uncomfortable places of the unknown and spontaneity and the problem is that spontaneity is integral to art i would say that there is almost no art without a degree of spontaneity but spontaneity is uh exactly what makes art such a scary thing for any type of authoritarian regime or controlling Mm. personality or network with many sponsors and advertisers that they have to keep pleased uh is spontaneity because we don't know what's going to come of it but there is something so raw and so real in spontaneous expression that's why when when you go to a concert or a play or, or a club where you dance, th- there is this degree of freedom, freedom to be, freedom to act, freedom to, to exist slightly on the edge of the unknown. Uh, what, what note are we going to play next? How am I going to deliver this line? How am I going to deal with what you just tossed to me? I'm dancing, but the key of the, the song just changed. How am I going to change with that beat change or all these different things that get thrown at us that take us out of our heads, first of all. That's why spontaneity is such a, um, such a, a healing um, experience because it gets you out of this kind of like, what should I do? What should I do? What's okay? What would they like? Mm -hmm. And that's why a culture that's so obsessed with this kind of self-censorship and, 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 and signaling the right uh, um, ideas and alignments is so dangerous for art because little by little, it erodes that space for spontaneity. And, um, But there's another element to art, and that's unity. And so that's what we get when you have this this transcendent experience. And it can be you by yourself staring at a painting. And yet there's a unification that happens with you, the creator of that painting. And, And on some level, whether it's conscious or not, the entirety of humanity. Because there's something very inspiring about incredible art because in a way it's ours too 
there's somehow we understand that we are included in this, uh, this great sculpture, because it's, it's a creation of humanity. And so when we look at great art, there's almost a kind of and I think this is what's tied up with awe, which is we're marveling at the best of what humans can do. Yeah. Yeah. And that's and, where you get that. I want to participate in this life because look what can come of it. And we're such a cynical culture, as you put out, which I think is actually something that's really under realized. And really, we, we're not grappling with how deeply cynical of a culture we've become. I mean, if you look at any art, even entertainment, media, whatever it is, there's this exhausting level of irony upon irony and cynicism. It's art that knows it's art that knows it's art and we know you're watching it and it's just this level like it's so so much so many layers of meta which can be great it can be done right but when you go back to a few decades back where art was a little more um less focused upon itself and more focused upon the experience or the story that it was telling it's gosh it's like some it's relieving i i was um watching a movie um and uh, a bergman film um the seventh seal which is one of my favorite movies and um i can't remember what year it's from i want to say it's 60s i could be wrong uh but it's around there and it may be earlier but it is so unself-aware and not in a bad way it's art that is completely consumed with telling the story to the point that now we look at it in our cynical culture and it gets parodied a lot and it's kind of like um it's almost cliche in some ways because it's this movie that that has um portrays death as this like ghastly white face in a black cloak and uh, the protagonist is playing chess with death and so now we kind of see this as like almost passe oh playing chess with death like you know this is very um picturesque uh, um symbolism of death but there's something so um so wholesome and i don't mean it in the sense of like oh it's good i mean it in that it's it's so lacking in cynicism it's so vulnerable in its willingness to grapple with these ancient human fears like death Mm -hmm. now there's this deep cynicism that pervades all of art Uh, not all of it but a lot of art and entertainment and um, I think that's exhausting you're not going to get that sense of I want to be alive I love life I love humanity that you get when you look at these uh these really transcendent sculptures or these beautiful paintings or even just music that has this this great joy of creation because there's something there right art is Everything else aside, art is creation. And there's this binary between creation and destruction. So as we move away from the beauty of creation, we become more leaning leaning towards the, the pool of destruction. And I think cynicism is a little bit destructive in a way. Well, what I was going to say is that, um, you know, coming to this back to this question of what is art, I just jotted this down. Um, I think we're talking around it. Uh, you mentioned art is creation, but really um, I wrote down art equals uh, life, uh, humanity. Ultimately art is us. It is us. It's not, it's not, it's, I think it's, this is what I'm surmising just from this conversation. It's less about what we create in a sense. It's more about who and what we are. I mean, I, at the beginning of our conversation, I thought about 
uh, line that uh, most deaf, AKA Yasin Bey said that uh, it's like the first track on, on uh, black on both sides. But he's like, you know, if you want to know how hip hop is doing, you got to ask how the people are doing. And um, you know, whatever art is, and that's why we can't ignore this conversation be, uh, about art and, and culture because, and civilization, because art is us. We are art. We are humanity. And I think what's ir- ironic about that, I wrote this down as well, is that we were talking earlier about um, certain kinds of art being deemed as escapist. But what it, what it dawns on me, or it dawned on me as you were speaking, that um, it made me think back to my training where, like, you know, it, part of the problem with people getting out of their own way, prospective actors getting out of their own way, is we have all of these social masks and mores that we wear. And what's ironic is that we, we talk about art as escapism, but I think with nihilism, with the cynicism, um, sort of this fatalism, that's actually, actually another form of escape. You're escaping from some of the, the vicissitudes of life. You're escaping from some of the harsh realities of life and who we are by trying to comment on everything, by trying to put some kind of meta spin on everything, make everything kind of funny, be snarky, clever, cool, whatever. What you're doing is you're running away from whatever it is you fear, whatever it is that makes you uncomfortable. You are, you are running, you yourself are trying to escape from the harsh reality of whatever it is, your mortality, um, your insecurities, you know, your lack of attractiveness, your failures in life. Uh, you know, it's, it's all kinds of things that we don't want to, to talk about, but it's easier to tear something down. And I discovered this, you know, makes me think about when I was about 10 years old. I don't know why I, I had this sort of thought, but it, it struck me and I've always remembered it is that it takes that being a choosing to be a happy individual requires a lot of courage because there's so many factors in your life and in your, in your existence that try to, to break that down. And I wonder if, you know, now we talk about arts and art culture and, and arts industry being dominated by these people who are very cynical and very nihilistic and creating works that are equally so that in a way, what they're really doing is they're escaping. They're escaping from themselves, ironically, even as they purport to be vehicles of the human experience. And, and if they are artists um, and art is us and art is life and art is humanity, then if they're making this kind of art which seeks to destroy art, then they're, trying, they're really destroying themselves and by extension, the rest of us. Mm, I mean, think about it. Um, recently, there's, there's been two very, um, I, I guess, controversial or, or however... Uh, um, conversation sparking pieces of art, if you can call them that, in my opinion. Um, <laughs> so can, there was I the art puzzle. You, you really support these, whatever you're about to talk about. Mm-hmm. I love these pieces of art. So <laughs> <laughs> there was the art basil banana, the banana that was taped to the, the wall of the gallery. And that was it. The that fuck? was the piece of art. Yeah, exactly. That see, see, <laughs> let's this is the emperor's new clothes moment, which is we're all pretending that some things are oh, this is art, this is fine, this is great. But does it make you feel anything to look at a banana taped to the wall and say, "Oh, yes, I love it. It's so so uh so enlightening." I don't know what it means, but I'm sure it means something significant. $15,000. I'll buy it right now. Yes. Like it's a banana. Yeah, and then uh, better, better than that. I thought you couldn't top that, but of course um, that's the game now was, I, I can't remember the artist's name, but I believe the art was an invisible sculpture, which is 
a joke. I mean, at this point, it's we art, the art industry in that sense, like the more art organized fine art industry has become a parody of itself. This is the joke of art, which is all the the turtle, the black turtlenecks, you know, standing around and being like, oh, yes, it, it's mm. so riveting. It's so deep. And it's just an empty platter. Well, on <laughs> There's that nothing note, there. On that note, I want to unveil to the world my invisible sculpture. <laughs> Um, oh my gosh. As you can see, uh, a lot of work went into it. Um, for those who are just listening, um, I'm holding up uh, a sculpture between my two hands. And um, it's really hard to, what's well, a good place to put it? <laughs> it's really hard to describe uh, just in words. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to feel what, it. What it is. You just, you have to experience it yourself. Uh, for your, <laughs> my room right now is actually full of invisible sculptures. Sometimes I forget where I place them and trip over them in the morning. Uh, on the way to the fridge um it's truly beyond parody at this point but But here's the thing so if that's the art that we're getting what and this is my question let's be adults here this is i i hate the whole postmodern thing of everything is art anything can be argued into being art or out of being art if an artist calls it art it's art this is foolish and your reaction to that the, the banana taped on the wall is the truthful reaction now there's something tricky here right because uh this is was all predated by um duchamp's urinal so that's the original yeah oh well that's a later one yeah that's that's a different one right yeah piss christ i don't remember the artist that was in wasn't that in the the late 90s or the the late 2000s i I don't remember yeah, yeah duchamp was i can't remember when when he when he did the the urinal ah I'm so bad with dates. Either way, people know. It's the urinal that he put into uh, uh, an exhibition, just signed it, our mutt, and that was it. It was truly a urinal taken out of a bathroom and put on exhibition. People were furious when they got to that exhibition and the general public saw um, a urinal. People tried to destroy it, which I think is fascinating because, okay, so Duchamp was kind of this, this uh, pioneer of postmodern art, which is if I call it art, it is art. I can argue into anything being art. And this is, and granted, I get it. It's fine. It's art. Sure. But no one wants to put a urinal on display in their living room. No one looks at the urinal and feels in awe of the beauty that humanity can create. So that's the intellectual academic world of art. That's the invisible sculpture of art where, yes, it makes me think and I value it for that. And it is a piece of history and it is a, a, a conversation starter. But Per Plato's uh, tiers of art, it's not quite there. There's something not quite. There's something you know. There's something above that yet that makes you have that transcendent experience. And I think the anger of the crowds going to see the exhibition, going to a place where they feel. Um, where they find beauty, where they find reprieve from the drudgery of life or from their problems that they're putting off for just an hour while they go to the exhibition and being faced with this kind of, you know, in a sense, a kind of joke, which is here's your art. It's a urinal, but it's art because I said it is. So the anger of the crowd towards that is kind of this, this truthful, um, reaction to what we know art should be in a sense which is yeah you're calling this art but but it doesn't feel like art and i think there's something primal yeah yeah i think there's something primal about that understanding that 
so see if art is a, a parallel to this kind of div- divinity, this, this realm of the, the spiritual and art can invoke that same uh, experience of awe that people get through transcendence in their, in religion and in a deep moment of, of, of uh, spirituality. Imagine the, 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 what it is like to take that. What if you went to a, your church and in the place of the, the crucifix, there was a urinal, you see? And so I think that that's why there was this, this outrage toward this piece of art, because people inherently have this sense that art is supposed to be something larger than them. Mm. It's supposed to be something that provides this, this deeper experience. And so my fear is that with with this cynicism that's pervading art um and this kind of um this this nihilism which yes you're right it is an escape it's an escape from life right because that's the whole idea behind nihilism is that actually there's no meaning to life but i don't think many people believe that because there's a very clear conclusion that comes after you admit that life has no meaning nor purpose which is then why are you doing it if something has no meaning and no purpose and no end to it, it's useless. So why are you still using it? So this is the problem with this idea that nihilism is kind of like that we flirt with this idea of nihilism, but it culminates in destruction. It's the only sensical outcome to something that we deem having no worth, no purpose, no use is to discard it. What's also interesting about that is something that you said about, you know, the crowds came in and they reacted a certain way and they were outraged. And I've, I've been thinking about this a lot recently. Um, I, I make comparisons to pro wrestling now. And uh, it's, it's that the audiences now are becoming smarter uh, or they are smarter now than it's, it seems than the people who are actually putting out the wrestling product, as it were. <laughs> and what I'm sensing is uh, something that I, I hold dear to my core, which is even if you don't have, you know, the highest IQ, even if you don't have an Ivy League degree, if you don't have an expansive vocabulary to articulate how something made you feel, you can't write any think pieces about it in the Atlantic or some bullshit. People know how things make them feel. And I also love, um, I mean, Aristotle wrote about this, about uh, you know, he's writing in rhetoric at this time, but he's talking about how people, they, their sense it's actually sort of a, a, a humanistic point of, uh, point of view because he's writing about how human beings, they tend to veer towards what is true and what is good. And I, I love that we have these artists who are suppo- who I think in many senses, and perhaps you know, we might be accused of the same, but they, they sort of um, anoint themselves, I use that word uh, very deliberately, into this sort of class, uh, this, uh, this superior class, you know, we're outside of society, we're commenting on it, we're, we're sort of better than these other people, even though we are of the people and we serve the people as artists. But what, what, I, what I found interesting and, and is that you describe the crowds coming in and looking at this quote-unquote artists and this quote-unquote art and being like, this is some bullshit. And so my, my, my I guess what it made me think about is that now I feel like, and I feel this way in, in entertainment a lot of times now, is that the audiences and the consumers of the art are smarter or savvier. They're more full of life. They're more vital and they're more connected to life than these heady. And, you know, and yeah, and they come out of these MFA programs. Um, you know, there was an article some years ago in a, in a British uh, publication about how acting is becoming a more posh profession. And I think that the same goes for writing, producing, all these other things, because when you think about it, 
again, if you want to make it, so to, so to speak, as a, as a, in the entertainment industry, um, there's really only two places you can go. One is LA, the other is New York City. Both of them have, have uh, exorbitant costs of living. They're very difficult to live in. And as an artist, if you're a broke, starving artist, uh, there's very few people that can sustain years and years and years of not having a job, of making yourself available to drop everything. You know, when you get an audition that's due the next day or even that day, um, you're doing readings and workshops and developmental uh, uh, sessions with various new works that almost you know never go anywhere. If you get an offer at a prestigious off-Broadway theater, um, you know, it'll help your career, maybe. And it also will, that's, that's eight weeks of earning less money than you would make if you were on unemployment. What kind of people are able to sustain a life like that if they're not, if they don't already have money, if they don't already come from privilege? And so what I'm getting at is that you have this, this cloistered class of people. I'll call them bourgeois. I'll call them elites. I know it's a four letter word. Now it's kind of overused, (laughs) but these are the people overwhelmingly that are producing the quote unquote art that we are expected to consume. And we as consumers, as regular people, average Joes, Janes, Jamals, and Salome's are looking at this and being like, this is not landing with me, but the people who are producing it are saying, oh, well, there's something wrong with you. You don't like it. Something wrong with you. And uh, the analogy has been made about, you know, it's, it's as if you owned a restaurant and your food is garbage and people keep telling you your food is garbage, but you're just saying, oh, something wrong with your mouth. Something wrong with your taste buds. Not me. Mm-hmm. Fix your tongue, nigga. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like <laughs> you can't, uh, you, 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 you can't, it's not sustainable. You can't mm-hmm. keep telling people that, that they are wrong when it, when it's, when it's you. And I don't know if it's a, a, an avoidance of, Criticism again, this sort of offshoot of this nihilistic uh, or cynic or cynical uh, um, outlook and worldview, where you know, I think also part of it is is, I mean, it's partly ideological, right? We were, we were talking about um, uh, art and ideology and how those inform one another. And if you're coming from, at least from my experience, and and being on this side of the spectrum from for a long time, if you're on if you're on the left side of the spectrum. Um, you're sort of a crypto Marxist, even if you don't know it. Um, so much of that ideology is very cynical and, and it's about power dynamics. Now, you know, there's this one class of people who is controlling everything and everyone else is oppressed and life is dreary. Or you're going to be there permanently. And that's just the, that's how your life is going to be. And look at these people now who are making the art. They always talk about the climate catastrophe. They're talking about, you know, the the invisible enemy, this um, this virus, which has an ex- ex- obscenely high uh, um, survivability rate. Um, you know, the, the, we, we just spent four years being told constantly that we are, are descending into a fascist dictatorship, which we somehow voted our way out of, uh, interestingly enough. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's people who are, I mean, and that's part of their, their worldview is, and I mean, James Lindsay's written about this and, and um, among many, many others, they problematize everything. They're fine. It, it's a critical theory. It's literally finding things to criticize and what's problematic about each aspect of our life. They're finding problems. They have to solve these things. And then that funnels its way into, well, this is the function and purpose and use of our art. It's to attack these kinds of things. It's not to celebrate life and if, if it, in its beauty and its ugliness. It's, um, and again, you can, I, I make these examples. Uh, I use these examples a lot. There's a great uh, writer. Her name is Denai, Denai Guerrero. She's probably most well-known for her roles in The Walking Dead and Black Panther. But she started her career as a writer. There was one point a few years ago, and again, when we were complaining about the lack of diversity uh, on Broadway or in New York theater, she had a play um, running um, on Broadway and a different play running off Broadway at the exact same time in the same season. She's a brilliant, brilliant writer. She wrote this play 
uh, called The Convert. Um, it's set in the late 1800s in Zimbabwe, right at the onset of British colonization. And what she doesn't do is say, well, European, you know, colonizers are bad, yada, yada, yada. She definitely has a point of view about this. But what she, do, what, what she does do is put a human face on the conflict. What is the human cost of giving up? That's, I mean, the, the central character is the convert. This character who came from this tribe, but now she's expected to convert to, you know, Catholicism and all, sort of, um, all these other ideas. Um, I get really uh, excited and talk quickly. Um, <laughs> but it, it's... It's a play in which she presents multiple points of view, and it's very sympathetic because she's a smart, very skilled writer, and she's able to help you uh, um, sympathize with all these characters, even if you don't agree with them or even if you don't even like them. Being likable and being sympathetic are not the same thing. And, you know, or Athol Fugard, Siswe Bonzi is dead, um, co-created by the great John Connie, who people will recognize as Black Panther's dad. Back in the 70s, he won Tony Awards on Broadway when it came over from South Africa. You have people living under apartheid. They don't go on this long screed about why apartheid is bad. They show you the lives of the people affected by these policies. And so you don't have to divorce your politics or your political worldview from the work that you're doing. But what you do have to do is honor is honor the craft of what you're doing and honor the art of what you're doing, which is what we've been talking about this whole time. It's like this, you know, you could, your art can be a weapon, but it better be art um, at the end of the day. Otherwise, it's not going to have no impact. Mm-hmm. So, it just, it, so it just makes me think about um, the people that are making the art and how they're cynical and how they project their own neuroses and cynicisms onto people who don't share them. And they've made, they're making themselves increasingly obsolete. I mean, theater, nobody cares about theater. I mean, we, we know this and people, you know, <laughs> people talk, talk about Broadway, you know, I'm coming from, from a background where, um, you know, I think musical theater is fantastic at its highest art form. I love Shakespeare. I love the, the classics and, and, and check off what they're able to, to display about human life and show us about humans and, and who we are. But people be like, well, Broadway, man, that's dumb and gay. Broadway, man, fuck Broadway, <laughs> yo. You know, it's a bunch of like uh, uh, fairies dancing around and yada, 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 this and that. And um, I feel like that's kind of theater makers fault. They've made themselves obsolete because they have put themselves into these corners by by devoting themselves slavishly to these ideological uh, straitjackets. And, um, you know, I, that's that's not what art is, because I, as we said before, art is us. Art is humanity. It's all those impulses. Um, and and there's a power in that. And uh, mm-hmm. it seems like increasingly today, the people making it are out of touch with whatever that power is, out of touch with whatever their humanity, their real humanity is. And the audiences are like, no, we want more of the humanity. We want more of the aspirational <laughs> stuff. We want more of stuff that makes us feel and think, you know, but um, they're not finding that. But uh, I think that's, um, it's not going to last forever. And um, hopefully in our closing minutes, we can talk about um, how things are going to improve and, and what can change. I mean, just the fact that we're having this conversation right now, that individual artists can um, amass their own platforms and, and there's a system exist, that exists now where people, you know, the very individuals that we're talking about, the very Joe Q public that we're talking about now can say, hey, man, I don't know much about the, all that Shakespeare stuff, but I like what you do and you don't treat me like garbage. 
I'm going to throw you a few dollars every month just to support what you do and see where you go with it. And that, Mm -hmm. you know, you cut out the middleman, you cut out the agents, the executives, the, the, the managers, all these casting assholes who don't know what they're looking at when, you know, I think there's great that we have, it's great that we have the internet. We can distribute this stuff now and people will support it financially because they believe in the individuals doing the art. So I think there is a light at the end of the tunnel, but what do you think about that? Well, I think you make many great points. And um, this is Thank something that's that- the end of the Clifton Duncan podcast. <laughs> that's all I needed. Yeah, that's the clip. No, I mean, it's it's you're right, though, you make r- many great points. And uh, we could end there because Lord knows we've covered a lot. But I mean, there is so much to talk about with this. And I mean, I, I do want to definitely get home the point that um there is a kind of rebelliousness in art. And I think art that is treated as a tool solely um, becomes, or a status symbol, this is something that's important to recall, the history of art revolves as being something that uh, elites or the upper class or whatnot ally themselves with as a status symbol. And so these systems that produce art are always going to be vulnerable to um, the kind of stagnation that comes from um, too much emphasis on uh, production and profit and pleasing people of a certain group. Um, Art needs to be allowed to be chaotic because that's what it is. It is this dance between uh, chaos and, and, and making sense of that chaos. And um, because that is what life is to the, for the most part. I mean, every day something new can happen that you had no idea would occur. That's chaos. But the way that you manage that life is the, the, the sense that you make of that, the order that you bring to your life, the meaning. Um, and so this is... I think ultimately what happens to institutions that become stagnant because they become too um, obsessed with the idea of their own preservation uh, and their own, um, their own stance, their own image within that industry is that they crumble. And we're seeing that with journalism, with the media, we're seeing people turn away from legacy media and go towards smaller independent sources of media. We're seeing people turn away from from these larger um, productions of of film and and music and find indie creators that they align with and and, and support them directly. And so it's a great thing that we have these avenues available because that's what keeps it alive. Cause it's, there is always the danger that our art just becomes propaganda, that our art becomes to be more uh, um, direct and less, you know, uh, intellectual academic about it. It becomes advertising. It becomes a product. And so that's that balance because of course you want to make money with your art. I'm not saying you have to be, you know, you don't have to starve forever. And there is a degree to which you want to pay attention to whether something is working. Now, of course, that's the balance between, well, I still love what I created. So whether other people like it or not, okay, I'm still going to keep going down my path. It may be that your culture at the time cannot see the value in that, which is very much the case with, with wonderful artists is that they were so far ahead of their own culture that their culture could not appreciate them. But that requires 
a very high level of um, self-reflection. And, you know, that's something that ultimately you're going to you're going to go dry if you're trying to create something for some type of uh, approval or acceptance or positioning yourself within a certain group or, or the culture at large and you don't get that approval. You're going to drop that thing right away because the main goal was the approval. So an artist that is truly in it for the art is not in it for the approval. That's nice, but you don't turn your back on your art for approval. And that comes to this whole idea now where we have people kind of uh, mobbing whatever they don't like and, and crying out that it be removed or, or be censored. I mean, wasn't didn't there recently get an episode of The Office taken down from, I think it was taken off of Comedy Central. There's one episode that was like their Diversity Day episode or something. First of all, The Office is a masterpiece. So there's just no, there's no debate there in my mind well the british version uh we don't have to get into it uh i think the british version is a masterpiece and you know, the <gasps> american version you know but i'm also a pretentious snob uh so i love the american that. version I'd ha- right. i haven't even watched the british version okay usa usa so that is the end of this podcast it's been lovely <laughs> you're gonna leave to me you. on that note <laughs> that is uh that is also that you've canceled our real or any budding relationship yeah, yeah. we may have had <laughs> i got myself canceled it was inevitable American, but please no no but point is whether i like it or not you don't remove things from the culture as out of this idea that we have to protect people from bad art let it be bad fine then what happens is people don't like it and then it doesn't do well the end that's how that works so i mean but there's this idea of this kind of like central planning of art that we're going to dictate through you know uh, a mobbing or, or um or whatever gets green lighted by by the the higher ups what can be created and it's the opposite of the artistic process the genuine artistic process is between the artist and the art and so the more we start including other factors, other entities, other interests in that, the more we convolute the art that we're creating. And then you get these mutants that claim to be art, but they have this, this sense of hollowness, this sense of, you know, a kind of sickly hand reaching out for some goal, but with no, no, no true momentum, no true life behind it. I mean, there's excellent art that is in the service of political ideals or, or some greater um, um, goal. But it's so true to the artist that it has that life behind it. It can't be something where, okay, I want to create art that uh, touches on X social issue. Let me go check the notes on X social issue. Okay. So that's how, that's not art. That's advertising. That's what we do when we, we all sit together and we say, okay, how are we going to sell this product? Let's what, okay, Bob, mm-hmm. what's your idea? Okay. Uh, uh, Jenny, let's use this line. You know, that's not art that's advertising. So I think when we get so uh, disconnected from the role of art in a culture and we see it as something that is it's truly a bit of a denigration of what art is and it comes back to that idea of art having the ability to invoke awe so there is a sense of sacredness to art and to the artistic process so when we dare to defile that with this idea that outside individuals should dictate what an artist should create or um uh, and all these 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 goals about how art should look 
who it should cast, what stories it should tell. I mean, that's fine if the artist chooses to do those things. That's of their. That's going to be their own creative decision. But when it becomes this, this, uh, the culture at large dictating what gets created, I mean, it's just going to be. It's going to fall flat, and I think that's what we're seeing. And my fear is that it is very hard. Art is what. there's some quote I can't remember who it who says it but it's something that art washes off the dirt of daily life and so Mm -hmm. if we go to our art and it's trying to it's just yet another thing trying to control us trying to convince us to ally ourselves with something trying to tell us why we're wrong this is another thing that that art is is getting wrong in in, and movies and and whatever it is where it's so blatantly propagandistic it so blatantly has a goal in changing you that it's just like i I can go talk to my mom if i want that kind of relationship with my art if i want it to tell me hey here's what you're doing wrong and this is why you should do this like no offense to my mom she's great she's better than the art that is getting put out but i mean we don't (laughs) want to be scolded (laughs) yeah I don't want to be scolded by artists. I don't want to be preached at by directors. That why would anybody be inspired by that? So there is a sense that that uh, of a return to the sacredness of art and to the the role of the artist as someone that lives on the outside of the culture. And it's fine. Enjoy your entertainment. Um, You know, that's, that has a place in life too, where it's like, sometimes I just want to have fun and I'm not trying to get heady about something. I'm not trying to have a moment of awe, but um, it's important to remember that we still need that especially in a secular culture where we're desperate for meaning, we're desperate for that sense of being part of something larger than ourselves, something that gives us that, that just this little touch of, of, of light that makes us feel good for being human. I mean, when I listen to music that I love or a movie that I love, I feel a love for humanity. And that is such a powerful and healing thing for people to have access to. Because I think now what I constantly hear is this very misanthropic, like humans are the worst. Oh, we would be, be- it would be better if we went extinct. Having kids mm-hmm. is a crime. You know, yeah. this is, you clearly don't like human beings, right? But when you listen to the, the music that you love, or you see the art that has been created throughout the centuries, that is from humans just like you. So that has the, the ability to really um, to, to bring about the kind of unity and, 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 and self-transcendence that, that keeps a culture alive and keeps an individual alive realistically. And that's the beauty of having art being available and having it be real art, good art, not just entertainment, not just the fun that we like on the weekends, but there needs to be time for the kind of art that washes away that dirt of daily life. Well, I totally, I absolutely, um, obviously I agree with everything that you just said, uh, <laughs> except for the part about the American office, but, um, <laughs> you know, it, it, it comes back to me for this, this word, um, sacred and, um, in in thinking of why this kind of conversation is very important, um, it may sound hokey to people, it may sound a bit pretentious, but I do think we it would help us out a lot as a culture and as individuals if we returned to this idea 
of art as sacred. And it's not to elevate, you know, artists to this level of, you know, deities or people who should be worshipped. I mean, I think we're all kind of sick of celebrity worship as a culture anyway. But it's this idea that art is more important than we're making it and that it is sacred. And it comes back to this idea of, of art. You know, you can think of it as like, you can think of it as these as these creations that we that we share with the world, but really at the end of the day, art is us. I love what you talked about with awe. And when you're feeling that awe, you know, when you're, you know, or when you're, you know, when you're shedding tears, when Lear brings his daughter, carries his daughter out on stage, spoiler alert, sorry guys, mm-hmm. um, it's 500 years old play, come on. Um, you know, when I first read that, I was just, I was, I just was weeping. And when you see it on stage, when it's played very, very well, um, that, that, the feeling of a man losing his best daughter, um, the one, the only one who really loved him and him realizing that, that humanity, that jacks you into the people Shakespeare was writing about. It jacks you into the person sitting behind you, beside you. It jacks you into the people who aren't even in the theater that night or in the cinema that night. And I guess the point that I want to leave with is the reason that all this is important even if you think it's gobbledygook, if you think it's too mystic or kind of woo-woo, whatever, is that you ignore art to your own peril and to the peril of your civilization and society. Because like it or not, if you think, you know, we're kind of weird or we think artists are crazy or whatever, art is you. Art is humanity. And when what you feel with art is the feelings that art uh, evokes, they connect you to the rest of humanity. And you can't have a healthy society, you can't have healthy people who are disconnected from that. And so when we talk about these culture wars, I want people going forward to just to understand that that artists, true artists, not the careerists, not the people who just want to be famous. There's a lot of those motherfuckers that are really annoying. Um, I don't want fame. I just want money. Um, all the, the, the people who are really dedicated to the art are really trying to serve you. And in a way they are connecting you to your ancestors. They're connecting you to the people, to your children and your children's children. This is so, so vitally, crucially important. It it is sacred because life is sacred. Humanity is sacred. People are sacred. I'm saying this as an atheist. I don't use the word sacred a lot, but I, I feel like if we're going to keep going in this direction, a sort of godless direction, if, if you say that much, if you want to put it that way, um, we need something to fill the void. Conservatives talk about the God-shaped hole, how we need more religion. I'm not sure that's the answer, um, but I do know that we need something. And I feel like art is something that's so universal that we, we could all benefit from partaking in it and respecting it and um, consuming it and better yet, creating it. Uh, I close on this note from um, uh, Joseph Campbell, who gave a bunch of interviews. You can find them online um, just about myth and myth making. And um, he talks about how the best stories and the best poetry, they, the best writers, they, they remind us of what it feels like, the, the, of this, the experience of being alive. And that is what we need to we need to really harness in on is the experience of being alive because being alive we we're, we are alive for such a short time but instead of using art as a weapon instead of using art in this hollow hollow this shallow uh, um, hollow way of trying to affect change or start a conversation 
Um, no, you know, why don't instead of trying to affect change, why don't you affect people? Why don't you affect emotions? Um, why don't you go back to that? And then you have a greater chance, a greater likelihood of affecting the change you want to see in the world. Um, that's the end of my spiel. I hope it was uh, inspirational to all of you. This has been the Clifton Duncan podcast. Now, uh, to my, again, my uh, goblin looking ho- uh, co-host or guest, uh, how can people find you and, uh, and get in touch with you if they, if they choose to do so? Yeah, well, I can be found on Twitter and Instagram at Salome Sibone. I hope you will put that in the show notes for people because I won't uh, try to give that spelling out. And um, I can also be found on Substack writing a newsletter called Weird and Good, which is also equally spelled in a difficult way. And um, it's G-U-D with an umlaut. I try very hard to make sure that people cannot find me clearly. And um, yeah. be- beyond that, uh, I-, I think the most interesting thing that people could check out right now, if you like the way I speak and you like the way, the, the way I speak about art and the idea of art as being able to tell stories that are timeless, you'd probably like the Silver Eye Society podcast, which is me deconstructing uh, movies through using the larger themes that come out of them, whether it's philosophy, psychology, mythology. Um, but the, the, the newsletter is also a, a good place to go if you like um, ideas of philosophy, existentialism, and just weird and good stuff. That's what I write about. It's a little short newsletter about whatever random things that I find interesting. Well, I find you profoundly interesting, Miss Sibonet, even if I cannot pronounce your name correctly to save my <laughs> no, life. No, you're doing a great job. <laughs> I, I, I try. I'm just I'm seeking validation. But uh, I'm just <laughs> um, you can find me, my friends. Uh, I have a bunch of different names, which makes me, makes me different uh, or difficult to find. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Clifton A. Duncan. I am an uh, a increasingly prolific, mediocre Twitter personality. You can find me on Instagram at Clifton Duncan Online. You can find me on YouTube at Clifton Duncan Entertainment. Um, check there for uh, more performance-based videos. It's going to be popping really, really soon. And uh, I also have a substack called Musings from the Apocalypse. So people get out there, support uh, independent artists, uh, uh, especially if they are as fascinating um, as Miss Sibonet. <laughs>